Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 143. This interview is with Mike Ballerman, a fellow podcaster and host for the well-listened-to London Fintech podcast. So in this podcast, Mike and I discuss the world of fintech, what are some of the most interesting initiatives, and most importantly, how can financial services companies approach and take advantage of this new wave of new tech? Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T.com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. Mike Ballerman, welcome to the show. We're both in Blighty, but now we're doing this by distance. So tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset? Well, thank you for inviting me on the show, Minta. As you know, one of the things that I've been doing for the last year is something called the London Fintech Podcast. So I'm a podcaster like you. Mm-hmm. So it's very relaxing to have somebody else in charge. <laughs> so what do you do, Mike? Tell us. In terms of my background, basically I started in a tech startup some 30 plus years ago, and I spent 30 years in financial services. 13 years as a merchant banker running global fintech fund management, and then I was the first head of risk in the city in 1992 onwards, because risk didn't really exist at the time. And uh, since then, I've been an independent consultant for 17 years, working with the private sector, public sector, and now with small fintech startups um, in this very exciting area that I like to think of more as new financial services rather than uh, this funny fintech world. It is. It's a confusing world for anybody who's outside of it. But I would probably argue it's confusing inside. Uh, so let, well, let's, if we just take fintech, because this is sort of that sort of trendy, hot topic. Tell us, in, how do you describe what is fintech? It's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, just to try and simplify, where does the word come from in the first place? You know, it tends to come from West Coast states uh, VCs who like phrases like ed tech, med tech, fintech, you know, education technology or medical technology or financial technology. Um, so it's a very much a sort of top-down phrase. In practice, it breaks down into two very, very different things. So the main area of fintech by numbers is what in the UK we would have called a couple of years ago small IT companies trying to sell to banks and make banks better. Um, the much smaller and perhaps more interesting section, which is sometimes called disruptive fintech, is basically new financial services companies taking advantage of internet and digital technologies to give the consumer a better deal in financial services. So if we, if we look at the, the latter, um, Apple Pay, Google Wallet? So within the latter, there are a number of vertical segments. I mean, starting with the most well-known, you'd have to think of online lending and borrowing. Um, lending clubs, IPO before Christmas, uh, really put that on the, on the map for everyone worldwide. Um, and the same thing in the UK where it was invented by Zopa. So you've got online lending and borrowing. You've got online foreign exchange, where the better one known ones are such as TransferWise. Um, and if you go to their website, basically what they promise you is that they will change money from one currency to another, uh, roughly 10 times cheaper than the banks, um, which is obviously a very interesting proposition. Um, you've then got uh, equity uh, crowdfunding, where you can go and raise... 
um, equity. And then the things that you're talking about in payments, which has been a slow moving sector for quite a long time and quite an expensive one, they tend to be driven more by the technology side. So things like Apple Pay and that I'd, I'd in my own mind, think of as a, as a tech solution rather than something providing a new financial services for customers like you or I directly online. Hmm. Well, so, but I mean, clearly, I mean, banks should be concerned about the the way iTunes has whatever five hundred million uh, credit cards on its on its records, and and because the end of the day, those types of plays where where payment is the connection with the customer and therefore the data, are they not the more the big uh, dino or the big uh, elephant to worry about as opposed to your little tech uh, disruptive play that you were talking about just before? I think that. Um one of the challenges of talking about this is that we all, uh, me included, tend to slip into using the word banks. Um, really, we're talking about financial services as a whole, and there's a lot going on in other sectors, uh, insurance being a, a notable one, for example. Um, but when it comes to banks, banks are very, very different things. So over my 30 years uh, in the city, what a bank was 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and now is radically different. And of course, it will be radically different um, in 10 years' time. And I think the principal issue for most of the banks that I know and have done work for is that over the last 10, 20, 30 years, they've got bigger and bigger and bigger and actually become vast conglomerates of a whole range of massively diverse different business segments. So one of their main challenges, taking your example of payments, for example, is, okay, so how, how important is payments to Citigroup or HSBC or something like that? Um, and therefore, it's quite difficult for them to organize a competitive response from the board level because you've got a whole range of businesses, which one of, most of which won't worry about payments and one of which will really worry about payments. So I tend to find it hard to think of a bank as a single entity. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, certainly the big ones have, you know, private banking, uh, investment banking, maybe some insurance components, uh, and of course all the retail banking and so on. So they end up with all these different components. So um from from let's say that the, the world of the media world and of course the banking world has woken up to this fintech but what what is i mean you've been on this in fintech you know do, dived into this term and this space only recently because it's kind of a recent thing but what's made it so hot what's why is it so important it's a very good question so to give an example um two years ago i was actually doing a, a head of business development gig for a, uh, what you actually we'd now call a fintech startup or semi-mature fintech. Um, and the interesting thing was two years ago, this was in the UK and, and Europe, uh, these guys didn't know the word fintech and wouldn't have thought of themselves as the word fintech. Um, if you talk about fintech and then you go back, then there are a number of people who really think it's just IT and banking and it's been around for decades. There are a number of people who think you're talking about derivatives technology and that kind of stuff. In the sense that it's used at the moment, um, it really took off in the UK in terms of being seen in mainstream media and things like the London Evening Standard um, last year. And in particular, the government has been pushing it very aggressively. So last summer, we had the first London Tech Week, um, which was a whole week of tech in general and showcasing the UK. And we had lots of PR statements about the, you know, the UK as a world leader and, and all this kind of stuff, which were pretty highly spun if you actually look at the data below it. So the government has been very keen to drive it largely because of the problems of the um, bank failures. 
we've got this whole digital technology revolution going on that I know you're an expert on. Um, in fintech companies, people basically tell me that it's now 10 times cheaper than it was 10 years ago to do a startup. Mm. And not only is it 10 times cheaper, it's so much easier because you don't have to have your own, own server racks um, and all that kind of thing. And then the third thing driving it is this uh, conglomerate feature where banks are so big now, that are so vast and so broadly spread that actually if you're a little sort of uh, in a mouse trying to take on a, the dinosaurs, you can go nibble one of the eggs. So if I um, it's it's you know it's, it's kind of a vast thing. So if I'm if I'm the CEO of a large bank, one of these banks you just cited, where do you think the biggest risks are? And on the other side, where do you think the biggest opportunities are? If you had to break down, uh, how would you break down those? In other words, you know, would you look at well, my private banking? That's really that's there's no risk. Well, but in, in my retail banking, big risk or big opportunity. How would you approach opportunities and risks if you're running the whole, the whole shebang in terms of looking at the fintech uh, um, opportunity, you know, space? Um, good question. Well presented. And it's one clearly where I, I could spend months advising people on. Um, I think I always come back to the business perspective. So it doesn't matter whether I'm talking to you or to HSBC, or a biotech firm, um, the first question is, who are you, what are you doing, and what's your, what's your view of the future? Without this sort of strategic view of what they're there for, it's very hard to implement um, a strategy and then turn that into tactics. So, for example, I was listening to your show uh, last week, and the lady on the show was talking about the fact that, you know, social media and financial services, the first question they ask is, should we use Twitter or Facebook? <laughs> Something like that. You know, to which she then goes back to, okay, look, who are you trying to communicate to? What are you trying to communicate? What result do you want? So the first thing I'd say to any CEO like that is, is what's the strategy? What's the view of, what's the, view of the bank? Um, and then the second question, coming back to it's a conglomerate, which is that if you view yourself on the main board of one of these organizations as running a conglomerate, then really one of the things you're going to be wanting to know from each of the individual business lines, because the whole process cascades down, is what is your strategy for changing and keeping up with innovation and moving forwards and responding to competitive threats? So I'd situate it in the whole business context like that. And I think one of the difficulties is that because the banks have grown so fast, because regulation is such an infinite burden, if you're outside financial services, you cannot conceive of the bureaucracy and difficulty of it. Mm. Um, because they've had all these challenges, they've really lost sight of the sort of simple business stuff. And that's why innovation is tending to happen outside the banks at the moment. So coming back to your original question, um, for me, it's 80 to 90% of fintech is actually an opportunity for banks to make themselves better. In the vast majority of incoming queries I get are people saying, can you help us sell to a bank? We've got this great piece of kit that will make them better. So that's the, that's the first point to make. And in terms of disruptive fintech, um, the solid ones that I speak to, uh, say it's really about compete and collaborate. So my favorite fintech fintech uh, for fintech insiders is a firm called Currency Cloud. They do business-to-business -business foreign exchange. They've now done $10 billion of volume, which is a large number um, uh, on anybody's scale. Yeah. And I've interviewed recently the chairman in one episode and also the chief executive. Um, and they are seen as the best and they are seen as the most disruptive. But in their estimate... 35% of what they do is take away business from banks, but 75% is just give business to banks. Hmm. So, you know, if I'm sitting up there, I'm, I'm so, I tend, you know, if I'm, if I'm pretending I'm the CEO of this large uh, bank, 
I, I tend to think according to the people, the departments uh, reporting into me. And, and that's, sort of how, that's one of the ways we, we've been programmed because we sort of siloed these out. Yes. And so I tend, you know, I would then maybe quickly start thinking, well, maybe we should be more in the B to C because all this social media, that's all about B to C. I mean, of course, incorrectly thought, though. Um, but I'm just trying to I'm, I'm wondering if there's a, a higher risk or higher opportunity in one of the categories. In other words, those that are more in touch with the consumer or is it do you think that there are more interesting opportunities towards the business uh, clients or is it something that should be more about internal operations uh, or is it a combination? What do you think? Um, it's a good question. I think I always keep going back to the Harvard Business Review article um, of the 1990s, which is worth checking out, or putting in the show notes, sure. called Unbundling the Corporation. Hmm. Um, I think it's a very seminal article. I think if it was rewritten now, a better part of 20 years later, it, it would be changed slightly. Um, and what this is saying is that when corporations get too large, they have to um, decide where they're going. Um, so one of them uh, is a platform. Uh, another is, is an infrastructure provider. So, for example, if we take a different sector, which is the biotech, you know, what we find there is that the large drug companies are really just distribution conduits. And they tend to buy in innovation and new drugs from outside because it's much easier, cheaper and more efficient for them to pay a few million and buy some startup that's got some new drug um, and then, then take the whole process and distribute than it is to combine being a vast global you know, Glaxo, Smith, Klein, Bleach, or whatever they're called these days, and have that culture, but at the same time do the innovation. So again, I think it comes back to what's the vision for the company. Totally. All right. So, all right. Let's assume we've got a good vision, and uh, we, our strategy is clear. You've mentioned. So, so if you've got that already, just just being a little bit sarcastic, because I can be having spent thirty years with banks. <laughs> if you've got that already, then you're in a very small. You're in a very small group. And and presumably in, in a good space. Uh, presuming it's a good one, um, good strategy. I mean, so uh, you have that uh, done, and but you mentioned this notion of compete and collaborate. So how do you organize that? Because in the end of the day, let's say you can buy them, you can uh, sponsor them or invest in them, you can try to uh, have some a form of alliance. I mean, there's so many different ways to organize that. Yet. Uh, especially when we're talking about these startups, you know, what you mentioned at the very beginning, sort of, uh, you know, they're there, they're, they want to work with these banks. The cultural differences between a, a techie startup with 28-year-olds who have um, not shaved in three days and, and, and prefer to come into work at 11 o'clock in the afternoon uh, and, and, and work on Sunday morning, um, as opposed to the sort of more standard institutional traditional approaches that banks have in terms of culture and work hours and so on. How, how do you try to help a bank, give us an example of how you try to help a bank organize that compete, collaborate uh, style? Yes, so picking up the, the more difficult and challenging end, although the more rewarding for the banks. So getting back to my, my guesstimate, um, it's 80 to 90% of the fintech is uh, an opportunity for banks. Um, so then, as you say, is how do you collaborate? Um, and all the cultural points you made are very valid. Um, there's also a very important point of timescale. So um, this week I was speaking to somebody who's going through a government tender process, some quite important process. And on one hand, you've got the civil service who have paid 
per day. They're very thorough. They're not allowed to make mistakes, and their process takes ages. On the other hand, there are some guys who knows his capital is going to run out in three months. So there are those there are those challenges as well. And really, you know, one way of viewing this problem for from the top of a bank is it's a dating challenge. You know, there yeah. are thousands of men slash women out there who want to date you. And, you know, you might think for five minutes that that's actually quite good because you've got so much choice. But then, as we all know, too much choice is a challenge in itself. So if we look at how banks have approached it, um, there are a number of uh, accelerator programs in London, for example. So Barclays has its own. Barclays um, Accelerator has been going for a few years now. Um, there's a little bit of a challenge around a single corporate uh, accelerator because, in a sense, uh, it's very easy to end up fitting with their particular approach or not fitting their approach. Um, Accenture started, I think, probably the world's first program in, uh, along with the New York City uh, a few years ago, and they're now in four or five centres around. And what they do on their program, they have some kind of beauty parade process for several months, and they pick the top 10 or 12 um, fintechs they find, and they've got a bunch of banks on the other side. And um, there's a kind of uh, education process to make sure the fintechs can present clearly and all that kind of stuff, which tech-driven people can't normally. Um, and uh, at the end, of, you know, the, the other side, you've got all the sort of CIOs and these kind of people who actually get to meet companies over several months and go through the process. And then the other one of a similar nature in the, in the UK, which is a European-driven one, is Startup Bootcamp. That's um, not part of a, a large sort of IT firm, um, but is an independent uh, entity, and again, they're in several places around the world. They're just open in Singapore, and they have the same thing. They do, I can't remember, one or two cohorts per annum, where there's a three-month program, and on the other side, you've got a whole bunch of big uh, organizations and credit card suppliers. So really, you can, can see that in a way as a little bit like a dating agency trying to narrow down the field of 1,000 people that want to sell you their wonderful kit to 10 that you get to know relatively well before deciding whether to date or mate. Hmm. So, that, I mean, so it, it kind of... Like all these industries that the very beginning, there were thousands and thousands of, you know, car companies at the end of the 19th century. And now that we're, we, we kind of know them all on the top of our hand, on the top of our mind. In fintech, it's the beginning. So you have all these things mushrooming everywhere. And as you're saying, there's, there's so many of them. The question is, well, how do you stay up with them, uh, understand who are the best players, and then who's the best fit for you? So that's the challenge. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one really needs a sort of Sherpa to guide you through these, these mountains. Um, in terms of the tech side that we're talking about, Finnovate is perhaps one of the largest uh, events in the world. Uh, I went there taking my podcast as Press Pass for the first time uh, earlier this year. Um, it was in London. And um, I think off the top of my head, there were like 1,200 people in the audience, which isn't so common in, in the UK, even if it is more common in the, in the States. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of six-minute presentations in the day. So, you know, I sat there for about 45 minutes and I felt overwhelmed by content. And there were some people who sort of sat there the, um, the whole day. So, so that's, the, that's the challenge on that side. On the other side, in terms of the um, compete, um, it is slightly different because the competes can often be B2Bs, um, like Currency Cloud I mentioned, or Cantoxes. Um, and those people aren't the unshaven techies. They're people who have got suits and who are, you know, businessmen, as it were. And there, you've, none of those firms have ever actually been started by a tech person. They're all started by a marketing person uh, or a consultant uh, or somebody from financial services. And I think the strategy there is 
is a bit simpler in a way. Um, so in the 1990s, for example, in telecoms, which is another analogy of, a, of an industry that grew and grew and grew scale to be an oligopoly, and then was faced with new competition in terms of mobile phone providers. A chum of mine in the 1990s was running Arthur D. Little, um, and he was head of uh, telecoms in London. And I remember having lunch with him, and he was terribly frustrated, because he'd go and see the main boards and CEOs of the telecoms companies, and he'd jump up and down and wave his arms and say, hey, look, there's this huge revolution coming, guys, you know, get with the program, get with the program, uh, otherwise it's going to be really threatening. And they said, oh, that's very interesting, you know, please come back and talk to us again. And, you know, 20 years later, those big firms, by and large, are still there, and 20 years later, some of them are just getting around to buying these small scale-ups and startups, which are now pretty big companies in their own right. So I think one thing that's very easy to forget in the conversation when we're just using all these phrases like banks and fintechs is that when you open their sort of uh, report and accounts and look at the balance sheet, there's a number at the bottom that's got lots of zeros in. And the bank's number's got far more zeros at the end than the other ones. But basically what that means is that they can afford to wait slash get it wrong slash miss the boat. Um, and as long as they end up sort of buying one sooner or later, then they can just absorb the competition in the traditional way that they've been doing it for quite a long time. So you you would be a proponent of being patient and you know I would say strategic in your approach. You think that banks, the big banks, can afford that? I think the most important thing, again, just coming back to being a business, the most important thing is to know what your business is and what your approach is. So just taking HSBC as an example, having done a couple of gigs around there, they are. You know, this is quite hard to believe from outside, given the difficulties they've had in one or two regulatory areas. Um, they always see themselves as being conservative, as being the last part, last people to embrace a <laughs> new area. Mm-hmm. And by and large, that held them in good state for quite a long time. I mean, certainly before they bought Midland Bank, when they were the old Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, they were a very conservative organization. So they didn't see themselves as a bleeding edge. That was their culture. And if they weren't in tune with that, then by and large, they went their own way. And down the opposite direction, then some of the um, you know, investment banks in the, in the 90s and, and 00s, um, uh, and I think that I remember seeing something about Goldman Sachs has got more people in IT than, than in trading or something like that. <clears throat> Those firms see themselves as being very technology driven. And again, you know, you've got to go with your nature. And if you're that kind of firm, then you want to be a bit more proactive about it. So HSBC is one of, you would characterize as someone who's doing a good job or, or maybe put it another way, Mike. What uh, what banks do you see or players do you see in this space doing a good job of dealing with this fintech? I mean, I'm looking at the more traditional side. The, which of the big banks are doing a better job and maybe try to elaborate or illuminate us on why you think they're doing a better job? Well, I don't necessarily want to sort of single out too many uh, organizations for obvious reasons. I mean, I think coming back to the fact that it's only really hit the mainstream media a year ago, uh, and a lot of these firms are still very, very small. Um, I think that you know, banking or financial services as a whole is still um, in the process of organising its response, understanding what it wants to do and working through it. So I don't think many of them are very far down the stream. And equally, I don't think many fintechs, if any, are a threat to banks today. I think we're all more, more worried about tomorrow uh, or a year's time. Having said that, the one um, that does tend to self-publicise, having done... Uh, much more is Santander. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a, a. I mean, a lot of banks, and I've got two. I mean, two minds about this one. A lot of banks say, "Oh, set up an innovation unit." So, on the one hand, that is one way of addressing this, you know, dating, meeting, compete, collaborate um, issue, because you've got a bunch of folks sitting in a room whose day job it is to focus on that, uh, rather than trying to give it sort of half an hour now and then as a CEO. Um, 
On the other hand, I did see a tweet which made me smile uh, a while ago and got favorited by a large number of people, which is that when any business sets up an innovation department, <laughs> you know it's gone wrong. Because yeah. everybody in the business should be thinking about change constantly from all levels of the organization, ideally. So, all right, so the, I, I come from this uh, more from the digital world. I mean, branding and digital as opposed to finance and technology. So in my mind, um, fintech would be able to cash my check on my mobile phone. Yeah. Um, that's, how I, that's how I look at it. And, and that, uh, I don't know who the, exactly the first one was, but my bank in the United States, Chase, um, allowed me to do that in 2011. And yet, in the United States, only 8 or 9% of Americans use a check once a month, as opposed to France, which, take, which is something like 30 or 33% of French people use a check once a month. And yet, you still can't cash your check on your mobile in France. So the business opportunity for the French banks uh, was, you know, was, was way out there, totally doable, and yet totally missed done by a country or a bank in a country where the check is much less used and therefore you know they I would say they would be more customer oriented than the french were so can you just unpack for me how fintech is not that or is that and why that wasn't fintech if it isn't um it's a good question it's quite a complex one so um certainly in tech america leads the world by a long long way um it's less clear that it does um, in fintech um, and in the states you have this huge problem which is taking lender club as an example I think they're still not licensed off the top of my head in, in all of the states of America because each state has got its own regulations so it really is this um, mosaic which is uh, very tricky and to take another example um, in the UK equity crowdfunding is perfectly legal and anybody can go along and, and buy shares online um, but it's not yet uh, legal in America so in some ways, the UK is ahead. Um, and typically, of course, from an Anglo-Saxon perspective, um, he says, trying to keep a straight face, <laughs> both America uh, and the UK would tend to look on the French as being conservative, slow to change to the new world, um, and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, privately, uh, people will be less surprised because there's a more slow-moving, statist approach to financial services. Now, I think the other thing to make a, a very important point here, which is that there's too much kind of tech thinking does tend to creep into this. And because actually what you want from financial services, in a sense, the, the core functions that we're talking about, these are just utilities. They should be boring, safe, and not very sexy by and large. Mm. And that's one of the things that's gone wrong. So before Big Bang, which was in the 1980s, when banks were suddenly free to buy stock jobbers, stock brokers, um, and the same in the States, the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Before that, you had very narrow dull organizations just doing things like current accounts and mm -hmm. lending money for mortgages. And I personally believe, and I say I've got 30 years experience in risk as a poacher gamekeeper and now consultant, that that model is more stable and it's better for the taxpayer and it's better for everybody if all the sexy stuff was just in investment banks. And this is the whole point of the glass steagall in the first place. Now, having done some work in Iceland, when Iceland's banks blew up completely, um, what Iceland basically did was go back to this concept of narrow banking. You know, in the UK, there's a lot of focus on competition for current accounts and that. But what they're missing, though, entirely is that, you know, you build a good company by solving people's pain. Now, frankly, my current account isn't a pain. It works. It does the stuff. I don't really care about it. I've got much more concerns. So one of the statistics I've heard quoted many times is that in the UK, 
your you change your spouse ten years more often than you change your current account provider. Hmm. Well, so yeah, that's fascinating because I mean I, I kind of live this as a customer as well, and in this case, when with Chase, we're talking about my checking and savings account, so rather the sort of the dull, unsexy component of it, and yet you know the fact that I can cash my check in London in New York and get a confirmation within uh, under 20 minutes saying that the cash, the check has been uh, acknowledged is for me awfully sexy, but that's sort of my maybe geeky approach <laughs> to fintech. Yes, I mean, it may, it may be because, I mean, you know, we're just talking about consumers in general. I mean, I think the average consumer doesn't really care whether this check's cashed in 20 minutes or, or a day as long as it's fairly sort of simple. And one element that's very important to what you're talking about is the globalization aspect. Um, and we've still got local regulation and banks aren't quite as global uh, as they might be. So the international uh, transfer of money, which is where things like TransferWise come in, who say they'll do it 10 times cheaper than, than the banks for you, uh, where that becomes very important. It certainly would speak to people. Yeah, so- and again, I mean, talking about Chase, you know, that's one of the organisations that I would see that is very focused on the consumer banking and trying to keep ahead of the curve. Yeah, and then of course it has Morgan on the other side. Um, yeah. uh, we, we were saying that banks, um, not to you know kibosh, but you know maybe the more conservative uh, environment, make it safe. And now with fintech, I think comes up the question of talent. So as conservative as you might be, if you want to be able to approach, compete, collaborate with these fintech play- players. How do you also attract the talent uh, from an HR perspective? Because, you know, if you're talking conservative, you're typically not going to be talking the high flyers, the high entrepreneurs, the risk takers, which ultimately is what you kind of need when you're dealing with this fintech because it's sort of it's new, it's tricky, it's uh, it's unexplored. Yes, I think that's a very important perspective, Minter. And I think that's you know a good example of where people from outside a segment can add quite a lot of value because within the segment there tends to be group think um, and some important aspects are missed. And this is one of the more subtle ones, which is um, that going back to when I started in the city in the 1980s, everybody wanted to go into banking. So certainly the merchant banks had the pick of whoever they wanted. Uh, I'm not yeah. quite sure what the kids want to go into today. Most of them seem to want to go around the world for a few years and be paid by their parents, which seems like a good gig. Um, <laughs> The set against that, I think, just going back to numbers, um, I think if you look at the aggregate employment in financial services in in London, for example, it's probably around about a million, um, if not more. Um, And what's the aggregate number of employees in fintech? I haven't seen, but most of these companies are pretty tiny, and I'd be amazed if it was 10,000. So there's just a supply and demand issue there. So it's not possible for too many to leave. Um, the second point is that um, although fintech is exciting, and one of the things that I really enjoy about being in fintech is that you meet some very interesting people trying to be creative and make things happen in the world, whereas my buddies who have stayed in sort of old financial services organizations by and large are tend to finding it far more boring because they're just very large processing machines. Um, although it's more exciting, it is much more risky. And now you mentioned before the oligopoly, and oligopoly applies to everything these days in the way that the world works. So you're already seeing in some of these spaces I mentioned, you know, online peer-to-peer lending and borrowing, online foreign exchange, you're already seeing within the fintechs um, a small handful, a handful or a small handful emerging who are making the money, who are getting the deals, who are raising the funding, who can do more advertising, who, who can do more marketing. And then before you know it, you've got three or four left in a segment. 
and they won't employ that many people. That's one of the things about the fintech. So if you look at the leading peer-to-peer -peer lenders in the UK, um, off the top of my head, um, they've probably got a hundred or less people in them. Mm. And and arguably, you ain't going to have many more than uh, three or four play big players in that segment in five years' time. So one thing you've got at the moment is this huge explosion of creativity, huge explosion of startups. But as we know, 99% of startups go bust. Mm. So it needs to be the risk takers who are moving over. And uh, Mike, so one last question before we close out. What's, um, if you had your little, the little um, apple in your eye, I don't know the expression, there's the twinkle in your eye in fintech, is there a, a, a one initiative or two initiatives that you really, really like or would uh, incite people to take an eye on? Um, I think that, you know, it depends whether you're outside financial services or inside financial services. If you're outside financial services, then I think that uh, you need to understand a little bit about what these new companies can provide for you, the customer. So TransferWise has spent more on marketing and advertising in the UK than almost anybody else. But I still find that the majority of, quotes normal people haven't actually come across them. Mm -hmm. um, people are always transferring money from one country to another these days. Yep. Um, and a lot of people don't know they can do that 10 times cheaper. The same with the online lending and borrower. You know, if you're a high-quality consumer, uh, you may be able to get a, a better deal. If you're a saver, um, and uh, many people are, if you're a saver, then you can probably get 10 times the interest rate without much more risk by putting it into uh, one of the online lending and borrowing platforms than you can by leaving it in a savings account or bank. So if you're outside financial services, then I'd very much say that you, know, you need to educate yourself as to uh, what the segment can do for you. If you're inside financial services, then it is actually quite a challenge given the complexity of it, uh, and notwithstanding the fact that I spent pretty much every day for the last couple of years in fintech myself, it's still a challenge for me keeping up with it. Um, and without waving my own flag, um, you know, looking, listening to podcasts or following the media and some of these things is quite important because it's changing so fast. You know, in six months' time, my views will be different, and in, in a year's time from now, it will be different. Um, so professionals in financial services, it should should start to become part of their main course meal every day to understand, if only just from the perspective of what's the competitive threat and what are the new ideas and the new technologies and the exciting stuff that's happening in my industry. And going to conferences is another another way of doing that, of course. Well, if there's one thing I take away from all this, Mike, is uh, for people working in finance, is get your ears open out and listen and learn. Absolutely. So, Mike, how can someone listen and learn more, connect with you, follow you? What's the, uh, what are the best ways? I think the uh, simplest thing is just to use the portal of the London FinTech podcast. If you type that into Google, uh, you'll find um, you'll find the podcast and you'll find me or connect on LinkedIn. It's Mike Barryman. That's B-A-L-I-M-A-N. All right. Spectacular. Mike, have a lovely weekend. Thanks for coming on the show and look forward to uh, many more goodies with you. It's been a pleasure, Minter, and it's great to be a guest for a change. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, Phil. All your colors any different way To rid me of the gray And heal me With all your imperfections That you mention in your lack of self-security
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.